What up, my Hanyaks? Welcome back to the Rambly Viking Podcast. Today, we've got another book review for you. That's right, we're at the end of the month, and so uh, I've finished up my book, written up the review, and now it's time to, well, actually, I don't like calling it a review. I think it's more of a breakdown, and so that's what I'm going to, yeah, and that's what the title is, but I always end up saying review. To my book breakdown of mere Christianity. Now, believe it or not, I commented, A, that this was a shorter book than the other ones that I had read, or at least smaller in stature, and was overconfident and said, maybe I could read a couple C.S. Lewis books. Didn't take into account that despite its brevity, it would be heavy. And it's one you can't just blow through in terms of reading, in the sense of you need to make sure and pause and (laughs) like read carefully, I guess. And because sometimes I'm someone who can read without regard, meaning I just like read fast and I might, it's like, ah, I just get the general gist. And it's like, hold on. He's saying very specific, very uh, important things. So I, yeah. So I just read mere Christianity, um, classic pride comes before the fall. And I've, I, I wrote up my review and I went through and edited it twice now because first and foremost, it was eight pages. And then when I went through and I do my highlighting and I do red, yellow, and green, meaning red means don't say, yellow means maybe, green means absolutely say, and there was no red, only a little bit of yellow, mostly green. So I was like, all right, I got to figure out how to cover this because it's eight pages. It's too much. It's, I was like, I, this is going to be two hours long. And I don't want these to be two hours long. I want these to be a healthy 30 minutes to an hour and give you a good idea of the book, some of the important concepts and my favorite takeaways, but not give away too much where you're like, yeah, I got, I got the Rambling Viking cliff notes, so I don't need to go read the book. No, you absolutely need to go read the book. And I would say, read this book. It's an incredible book. And whether you're a Christian or not, because really, this was this stems from him. This is middle World War II, like 1942, and when you know, in the middle of the Blitzkrieg and stuff of the UK. And so, C.S. Lewis was asked to do a series of talks on Christian beliefs over the radio on on the BBC, and so that's what he did. And then he then took them and put them into a book that is dubbed Mere Christianity. So I didn't know that about this book. So that's really cool. So that gives you the time and the context of it. And, you know, in the midst of a, of a war and attacking of their homeland and kind of a f- fighting for civilization at large against the Nazis and the evil of the Nazis. And so he explores a Christian ethic kind of through that lens, not so specifically, but just understanding when you read it and realize it was in that time, it brings light to certain, some of the certain comparisons and and weightiness of certain things and how and or help you understand why he approached some of these things a certain way. So I narrowed it down to I'm going to kind of walk through the general concepts and then I'm going to touch on just some of my favorite quotes and expand on that best I can, of course. And um, but it's just a really great book all in all. And wait to the listen to the end to hear my final rating and review. So let's dive into it. And if you're, if you're not familiar with what I do here, basically a month, I'm reading a book a month at least. And so far that's all I've been able to do. So maybe I should try and read two a month or something. And then the end of every month, I do a review of whatever book I read. And so we've done how not to read the Bible, the carnivore code, 12 rules for life. What was last month's? I guess, hold on. Was that that's three. That takes me through March. What was April's? What was April's? Oh, the comfort crisis. There it is. And this month, mere Christianity. And 
I think I know which book I'm going to do for next month, but I'm not sure. So if you have any book suggestions, please send those in. But that's what I'm doing, and that's what this series is. So once a month, you'll see this. So if you don't know this about C.S. Lewis, first of all, he's, everyone should know who he is. But he is actually a case of staunch atheists converted to Christianity to then become a Christian thought leader of the 20th century in a lot of ways, and writer too. So he, and he alludes to his skepticism early on in life. And for me, anytime you hear a story of, that contrasts my story in the sense of I'm someone who's grown up, we'll say in the Christian world, for lack of a better term. Obviously, that's a choice you have to come to. And that's part of the Christian faith is that just because you grew up quote unquote Christian with Christian parents going to church does not mean you are a Christian or saved, but it does give you a different perspective on things when you come from the atheistic side of it or the skeptic side of it, which he comes from. And so he's been in both camps. He's seen, he's seen it from the other side first and then came into it. And to me, those are really powerful stories and it allows him to give certain insights that say, I, I, I can only speculate at and, um, but really don't, don't know or don't see because I'm not coming from that side of the fence. So that's where we're at. And he, the basic flow of the book is it's, it's broken up into, I think four different books, quote unquote. And then each book has chapters and parts in it. So and I don't know exactly. It says so kind of how it was. I think each book was maybe a talk. I don't know. I don't know how these were broken down exactly. But basically, he kind of starts from the beginning. And it's called mere Christianity because it is getting down to the core essence. So it's not about getting into different doctrines and specifics and things like that. But literally just looking at it from the standpoint of its most basic, fundamental, foundational principles. And that's the, I mean, it's mere Christianity. What is the quintessence? One of my favorite words I learned from college. Um, the quintessential piece, right? And what is the quintessence of Christianity? And how do we get there? And how does it make sense? And how does that jive in the world? And so he basically starts, I mean, he starts from the very basic of breaking down man's nature, the laws of nature, more of moral morals where we get those and kind of the implications of how we operate in the world and how we view the world and how we interact with the world and how then that shapes us and puts us in a position where essentially on some level or another, the way that man operates is that there is something outside of us and beyond us. And then, then that takes us into the conversation of, okay, so believing in something outside of us. So then he starts going into, well, here's what the Christian ethic is on that and, and how that plays in and how Christianity plays into kind of the natural proclivities to believe in something beyond ourselves and breaks that down. And then he goes into the specifics of sexual mor morality within uh, Christianity, the cardinal virtues, social morality, morality and psychoanalysis, uh, how that plays into things, marriage, I mean, forgiveness, the greatest sin, hope, faith, charity, all, all kind of the virtues. And then the doctrine of the Trinity and how we explain who God is and, and understanding kind of something we can never fully understand. So kind of the, the master, the sculptor and the sculptures, if you will, and understanding and, and framing that relationship. So I'm just going to kind of walk through, um, a lot of my favorite quotes or points that he touched on and hopefully, hopefully keep this under an hour. All right. Now I'm not being confident. I'm being hopeful. Um, but I am giving it my earnest, my earn, my best attempt. 
And that's a theme that we find in here. So there's obviously lots of great quotes. And fun fact, if you listen to last, oh geez, if you listen to Asinine Fatuity, whatever number episode that was, 310 or something like that, that is where I got this phrase. Bing, bing, bing. I think, I don't think I, I mentioned that specifically. I think I just alluded to it um, vaguely in, in that episode. Well, Asinine Fatuity comes from mere Christianity. And it's a new phrase I learned. It's a great phrase. If you want to know what that means and then how much fun you can have with it, go listen to that episode. And specifically, I can tell you what episode it is. If you give me, oh, well, depending on how fast the internet wants to be, 311. I think I said 310. 311. I'll even put a link in the description below. To make it easy, you just click through. Now, obviously, I'm going to put Spotify's link. So if you listen on a different platform, then go figure it out yourself. There's too many platforms for me to link to every single. It would, be, it would be, should be overkill. So, all right. So, like I, that's kind of the general flow of the book. And he basically makes his case. And I think he actually makes a really good case. And the funny thing to me is that so many things that he brings up that were, say, topical, cultural, are a lot of the same objections or points, counterpoints, rebuts, whatever, rebuttals, whatever you want to say that are made today, still made today and still holds true, which shows us once again, that in, in a lot of ways, humans don't really change in, in a general sense towards certain topics. But in other ways, we do make change in progress. But uh, by and large, that we're no nece- we're necessarily we're no better, quote unquote, than the people of that time or no more advanced necessarily, because literally he, he pulls up some objections. And I was like, oh, that's the exact. And this is, you know, 80 years ago. And then I was like, oh, this is the exact same objection that uh that I hear today and or hear commonly today and and maybe it's amongst you know it's just maybe it's just the fact that there's always going to be kind of shallow people with a shallow surface level understanding who don't want to pursue any deeper than that and merely critique from that standpoint and don't actually want to seek capital T truth as Jordan Peterson would say which I think uh, I like making distinctions like that. So anyways, so the first couple chapters are the law of nature and objections. So he goes into, you know, something we all understand, right? The law of nature. So he talks about how it's inherent. It's just kind of natural. That's why it's the law of nature. And that basically amongst men, we understand there's a right and wrong. And that believing that... And that established outside of us, that it's not arbitrarily established, and he gets into different objections, that there is, so, so then that leads us to the next natural conclusion, there's something beyond ourselves that establishes said law, right? So there's kind of two main points he brings out of that, that all men are all over the world, throughout time, have a sense of what they ought to do, and then in spite of that, we deliberately break from that and don't do what we ought to do. So having the sense of like, ought meaning like I should do this thing, not because it makes me look good or because I'm being pressured to, but like this is, we feel this natural pressure of like, we have a natural sense of being like, okay, I should help this person because that is just simply the right thing to do. And his point being that if it's the right thing to do, where does that come from? That's not because it's not even, and then that's putting aside like, well, I, it makes me look good or makes me feel good, but it's like, it's the right thing to do. And I think we can all attest to that in some way, shape or form. Right. And he, the objection is like, well, it is kind of what I already addressed, but he talks about the difference between feeling a desire to help, meaning like, oh, like I want to help versus like, I, f- I feel like I should help. 
And we've all been in those situations, right? So we can all understand that, if that makes sense. So uh, a, a way that he uses, he uses lots of metaphors and imagery in here that I think really helps. You know me, I'm an, I'm an analogous person. I like my analogies, metaphors, all that good stuff, because it helps just frame things. Even though it's like, I may understand the concept, framing them in certain ways just really makes it more tangible and, and I don't know, it just helps, right? So he talks about moral law, tells us the tune we ought to play, our instincts are merely the keys, right? So he's basically saying that like, that is kind of like the music that we should play with our instruments, with our instincts. Moral law tells us how to use our instincts in certain situations. And that leads him to talk about how, um, that every impulse has a time in its place, time in a place, meaning that there is no necessarily inherently bad impulses or instincts. It's only, um, what is the context around it? So I'm basically meaning that stuff isn't so simple and straightforward all the time, right? Everyone can be right and wrong depending on the timing. You could say one thing and in this situation it's right and in this situation it is wrong, right? And so of course naturally and we hear this a lot today because of postmodern moral relativism believe, you know, talks this is what they hit on. This is the it's funny that this objection was more in its infancy then and now it's more in I'd still say in, in some ways it's only an adolescent, but it's not necessarily in its full adulthood because I don't think I think the case is more or less the same. The objection being that it's just a social contract, construct, right? Um, to, and that's not his term, but that's basically what it says. He states that simply because it is taught by parents or teachers does not disqualify its truth or validity. Meaning a child on a desert Island has no idea about the multiplication tables, but that doesn't make them any less real or true. So he's basically hitting on the point that there is objective truth that transcends us. And when you look throughout history and time, we see the same truths and moral laws coming forward. Obviously there's some outliers where we have people, um, getting outside of what we would call the general moral ethic. And we, we have that with today with, um, I argue obviously that abortion is part of that where it's like, it's, it's outside of, um, the moral law, but that's, we're not going to get into that. Right. So he's basically saying that like the truth remains the same, whether we acknowledge it or not, just because you're taught it and it is built into our social constructs, such as schooling, parenting, family building, whatever, doesn't mean that it's any less true. You can take that away. And like multiplication is still multiplication. Math is just math. Like two plus two is going to equal four. The multiplication tables are going to remain the same, whether you learn them specifically or not in school. Like it's, it still remains true. And that's his case on moral laws, that it is something outside of us, right? And then he talks about how there's a differentiation sometimes too. When we think laws of nature, we think how nature works and he establishes that that's actually just facts of nature, like what stones, trees, and plants do. Um, and talks about how man is different. So we have, we have the facts of how men behave, but then we also have the sense of how we ought to behave. We don't merely just follow instincts. When you look at animals, when you look at the natural world, they just do. They just do, and that is the fact of the matter, and uh, <clears throat> and so that and, and that and that's a little bit of a wrinkle. And he's more establishing on the law of nature, not the facts of nature of how men act, but how we ought to act, and how there's something beyond us, right? And he also goes, he touches on how something can be an inconvenience but not morally wrong, and and this is how we know that there is a wrinkle. Is the simple fact is. Some things are inconveniences, but not morally wrong. Meaning someone can accidentally trip me and, and I would excuse them for that. It was an accident unintended. It's not morally wrong. If it inconvenienced me, maybe even hurt me, but it's not morally wrong versus the person who intentionally trips me because they want to, to see me fall. That is morally wrong. His, his, that's one of the examples. The other example he uses is 
Uh, if there's, if I'm going to get a good seat on, he says a train, we'll say an airplane to update it and, and say it's not assigned seats. So yeah, he says someone gets to the good seat that I wanted before I get to it, but there's no assigned seats. That's an inconvenience, but it's not morally wrong against me versus I'm already in that seat. I get up to go do something and someone slips in and steals it. That is morally wrong, right? So in, we can't all, we, we also make, gotta make sure we can't confuse in personal inconvenience to ourselves versus actual moral wrongdoings against us, right? So that's that's kind of where he starts and establishes. It's kind of mainly the, the meat and bones of, of book one. And uh, one last thing I'll say on that is he, he makes an interesting point of how like this is kind of intangible and abstract. He says if there's aliens and they came and observed us, they would they would they would not see the moral law. They would only see what we do. And the moral law is about what we ought to do. It's beyond that, right? So and, and he says if we honestly examine ourselves and examine humanity, we see that there is something that we are almost under something. That someone or something wants us to behave a certain way. Like, right? And, and that plays into if there is something beyond us, then say that created us or there's some intelligent design, then that means that there naturally is like if you create something, create a dresser like it is supposed to behave in a certain way, hold your clothes, drawers pull out, things like that. If you create a game and it's supposed to be there are certain rules that are supposed to be adhered to certain things that it should that it should function in a certain way. Same is true about us. So then he shifts gears and talking about the kind of what Christians believe. And one interesting point that he makes that I never really thought about, but is that throughout human history, more than not, men have believed in some sort of beings, deities, gods, what have you. That atheism is actually A, more recent, B, a vast minority. Meaning it's more recent that we decided to dispel with this idea of God, except I would personally argue that we we verbally dispel of I don't believe in the the, the spiritual God of how we've conceived God in the past, but uh, I think people just I think humans are naturally going to make something God, and it, it just has a different look on it. It's the same thing they just tried to put a mask on, be like we don't believe in God, but no science is your God, politics is your God, identity is your God, you know what have you quote unquote facts is your God, and. And it's treated, when you see it, people act in religious ways towards these certain beliefs, the same way that people act in religious ways with their religious beliefs and their God. So the interesting, another interesting fact he pointed out was, if you are a Christian, you don't have to believe that all our religions are completely wrong through and through. Now, before my Christian audience says, wait a minute, are you saying that other religions are just as right as Christianity? No. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Meaning, I can acknowledge as a Christian, other Belief systems have other other religions, if you will, have good teachings in them, right? I think they're good teachings in like Taoism and Buddhism about like how to treat other people and do good and, and do some sort of good. But I can also believe that they are missing the point, meaning Christianity is the truest form of that in, in the fact that it is true throughout. But I don't have to sit there and say they're all completely rubbish. Basically, it's kind of the postmodern of cherry picking, right? Like, okay, there's good teachings within that, but it's not, but also it's wrong overall, right? But as an atheist, you have to believe all religions are wrong, essentially. Now, you might say, well, that's once again, I'm quoting him here. And as I'm thinking about this, my first objection would be like, hold on, I have to believe that they can't have good teaching. Well, you have to believe that they are fundamentally wrong, right? So I can look at another religion and say, ah, they acknowledge that there's something beyond themselves, but they have just, they've missed the mark on what 
Uh, they're missing, you know, they, they have a God that they established, but it's just the wrong God. But atheists say, have to say there is no God. These are fundamentally basically wrong. And so the burden of proof then becomes on the atheists when you realize that throughout human history, they've all, all religions have been, have been, um, <laughs> or sorry, that all men have been religious in some sense and have put forth. And it's kind of crazy to me. That makes, that's the biggest case for atheism being wrong. and is that when you look through human history across cultures who have never interacted, they can have very similar or not sometimes not even similar, but they all have some similar iteration of gods beyond us. And you might say, well, that was a rudimentary understanding of not understanding what the sun is and the scientific fact. And it's like, yeah. Or is it the fact that it's ingrained in every in, in in the deepest fibers of our being that there is something more than just the physical and the material there's something beyond us and that goes back kind of the moral law law of nature how we ought to react and and, and i think that's absolutely true so um here we go ready and then we get into he touches on an objection that we hear all the time still today and we'll probably hear till the end of time if god made the world why has it gone wrong and he acknowledges that a lot of times this seems to stump Christianity. I think as a Christian, this is one of the hardest questions to deal with and articulate an answer to. But um, he simply takes it and says, when you analyze that you see bad or unjust in the world, you have to ask yourself first, before you can get to the real answer of the question, where you get this concept of observing what is just and unjust or good and bad. So first you have to saying, how am I judging good and bad and where is that coming from before i can get to the question of if it's a good god why has it gone so wrong right and so his uh his analogy here is a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line now there's so many good quotes out of here that's really what i want to try and harp on and and then as a retort to atheism he says it's too simple if the universe has no meaning we should have never found out that it has no meaning if there was never light we should never know that we were in the dark and to me, that's kind of like a bombshell own the atheist type type moment. And I'm sure there's good rebuttals to that and there's problems with that. But all in all, I think that's a very, very strong point against atheism being like, hold on. It's like, how do you know? You have to know about the dichotomy of things. And, and, and so it's like, if you know that there is no God or that like it has no meaning, then that means you have to explore that there was some meaning. And so it's kind of self-contradictory in some sense. And he also goes to touch on kind of what he calls Christianity and water, meaning when Christians take take the approach of oversimplifying and saying there's a good God in heaven and everything is all right. Um, and we like to just try and ignore and downplay the difficulties, suffering, hell and doctrine, like all the serious stuff. And his basic point being is like, look, things are complicated and this is this is a complicated issue and we shouldn't shy away from talking about the hard topics. It is lazy and it is also discouraging to potentially bring people into Christianity if you want to talk about it from a pragmatic standpoint. You're just saying, no, it's, that's just God's will, right? And I think I'm guilty of that, but I think a lot of I've, there's a lot of people who've been pushed away because when they want to try and address suffering and talk about suffering and maybe even address the potential that we don't have a good answer for that and we don't understand. And instead of articulating that, like, look, I really don't know, but I know in this greater foundational, I trust in this foundational good that God is good despite suffering and like he's, he's my anchor in that sense and so while i don't understand this suffering why it is the way it is and i don't have a good reconciliation for that it's better to say that than to say 
well, I mean, I mean, God, God is good and holy and just. And so you just got to trust in him and like, that's not worry about it. Like, hold on. No, no, no. There's real suffering and we should acknowledge that. Right. And so I appreciate how he did that in the book. And I think that was very, very good. And he says now at the same time, when people will offer objections saying, you know, if, if, if God is good, why is the world so messed up? He touches on that. Reality is not simple. Reality is complicated. Suffering is complicated. All of this is complicated. So he, he says, be aware of people who want to shift the goalposts, who, who want to, who will question it and say, it, well, it shouldn't be, it, it obviously isn't this simple, right? And, but when, but then when you start to maybe explain that they, they get upset and be like, it should be, well, it should be simple and straightforward. So they basically want to point out that you're being oversimplified. It's more, not simple, not so simple as God is good because people suffer and whatnot. And you say, okay, well, let's, let's explain that. And they say, whoa, the solution, this is too complex. There's too much mental gymnastics to have to be done to justify your God theory. And he simply says, okay, you're moving the goalposts. You, you say it's not simple, but then you don't want the, you, you say the problem isn't simple. But then when we start and offer a, a, a complex solution for a complex problem, you say, that's too complex. It should be simple. And that's just, I mean, that's natural for humans to want things to be more simple when in actuality we have to accept that it's not simple. So some other quotes do that come. Goodness is itself, but badness is only spoiled goodness. Pointing out that like goodness just is good, but badness is specifically goodness gone wrong. And that badness isn't just badness, right? Like evil is a parasite, not an, an original thing, okay? And how he frames Christianity too is he talks about it like this, right? Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in the great sabotage campaign. So he frames it as a kingdom that has gone awry under a tyrant and that the rightful king is coming in. And this is a story we've seen played out in many different films and things like that where uh, he's coming in to do that. So I really like that. Lots of good analogies in there. So let's keep walking through. He talks about God's will and the concept of will and how we're like, how could God will that? And this is where you get into, this is where he kind of gets into free will versus determinism. And we'll address the kind of how that works uh, or predestination, I should say. Um, and he frames it this way. If you are, say, in charge of a class and you make something voluntary, ha about half the people will do it. And then half the people won't. It says that is not what you willed, meaning you wanted everyone to do it, but you, you made it voluntary, meaning you wanted them to choose to do it. But, and so he says, that's not your will that those half didn't do it, but your will has made it possible for people to do it at the same time. And that's kind of, kind of how he ex explains how things can be within God's will, meaning God's will put things in place for this to be an option, but at the same time, giving us the ability to choose also means that just because when people choose wrong, that that specific instance is not necessarily his will, but his will has made it possible for the good thing to come out of it. So free will makes evil possible. It also makes any love or goodness possible is his larger point, right? And here's, this part of the book is where asinine fatuity comes in. And he talks about the claims of Christ. Now people want to accept Christ as a good moral teacher. And he says, when you simply study him and look into him, A, he left no option. The way that he talks, he says, you accept me wholesale, everything as is, I am the God, I am son of God, and I am God. And, or you, or you take nothing with it. He, and he framed it in such a way that it's the classic, like he's either diabolical liar and the antithesis of what he claims to be wolves and wolves, a wolf in sheep's clothing, or he's a lunatic. Like he's just completely crazy. And you have to take him at that. You can't say, Oh, well, you had some good teaching. No, the dude's a crazy person or he is who he says he is. And 
um, that's, and he talks about how his claims essentially are seen as asinine fatuity, specifically in the sense of, this is another framing I liked, where he talked about forgiveness of sins. So he talked about how you wrong, you kick me in the shin. And it's like, okay, it's one thing to be able to be like, I forgive you for wronging me, but it's another level. And this is what Christ claimed for me to forgive you for kicking someone else's shins for sins that have nothing to do with me, just forgiving your sins, period. And that's what he called. He's like that claim in and of itself is complete. You know, it's asinine fatuity for him to do to do that. So that's that's, now we're starting to walk at this point in the book. You're really starting to walk into the Christian beliefs and what they hold to. So. And uh, he has an interesting take when it comes to like his death and how it's like it's not necessarily him protecting us against God's wrath, but it's more of him putting us in proper position with God. And that was the goal. And so that's to me a specific nuanced conversation that um, I can't fully I'm not going to flesh out well or I'm not going to really attempt to do it. But that was his basic point. Right. And. And then he talks about how people, you know, they try and understand like how it happened, what exactly with the resurrection and another analogy. He says, a man can eat dinner without understanding exactly how food nourishes him. But you know that you need the food and the food is good for you. He says the same is true about Christ. He can accept what he has done without understanding how it was done. He can't under, but also he can't understand how it works until he has accepted it. And so it's like, you can't not eat or not look at food or not need food and then maybe fully understand how food works and nourishes your body. It's like, you have to do it right. Uh, then he starts jumping into, okay, how does this play out practically before getting into kind of Christian behaviors in book three and talking about morality and the Christian morality. So he says, um, it's called the practical conclusion. And this is one that I think is more, I bolded it on top of highlighting because I think it is more important today because we see this continually to play out. A lot of the problems that are addressed and people, why people hold certain views that they do is because they talk and they view the world and we look at it in shoulds. The world should be this way. Things should work this way. And we do that, but we do that in such a way we, we lose the anchor of, well, this is how it is. And we have to operate within how it is. We can work towards what it should be, but we should ask ourselves as what it should be. If our expectation of what it should be is realistic and something we can actually achieve based upon what we know about human, human, humans, human nature and history and how things operate. Right? Like we can't, like, I can't say I'm going to jump off this roof and float. Like, Oh, I should be able to do that. And so there should be some way that I can jump off of a cliff and, and magically float, not hit the ground or slowly float to the ground. It's like, no, the laws of gravity, like that is the reality that remains. And I cannot separate from that as much as I want to. And I need to remember that. So I don't go jumping off roofs thinking I'm, I'm going to float because that's the way it should be because I should be able to do that. And so his quote is, we have to take reality as it comes to us. There's no good. And, uh, this is one thing that I like about it being like 80 years ago and British is there's certain terms like asinine fatuity and other things that he uses that he throws in there. That's a lot of fun. He says, we have to take reality as it comes to us. There is no good jabbering about what it ought to be like or what we should have expected it to be like. Basically, he's like, we can't get too caught up in the hypotheticals. And that, I think that's something that plagues us today. We get too caught up in the hypotheticals and we don't want to live in reality. Now, at the same time, I think pessimists or those who want to be nihilistic cloak themselves in being, oh, well, you, you have to be real, man. Nothing's ever going to change. It's like, that's not what we're saying. And that's a, that's a generalized statement in the other direction, right? That's overdoing it. So diving into morality, um, 
he, and he talks about how, you know, within Christianity, we look at this and it's like, God calls us perfection, but we can never be perfect. And so like, how do we, how do we make sense of this? And his quote is perfect behavior may be unachievable as perfect gear changing is in driving, but that does not dampen the importance of pursuing perfection. Meaning, and this is someone for me who, this is the first time in my life where I haven't owned a stick shift car. So in like the last decade, I've always had a stick, stick shift car, um, got rid of the, the red bandit last fall. Um, now we got the Outback and the F-150. So I don't have a stick shift, but I still have a motorcycle. So I understand it. But it's like you always, you try and you, bringing in that practical comparison really for me opened my eyes to explaining this point. Meaning of, okay, like we know we're never going to be perfect. And so that's kind of the reality, but we should still try because in the pursuit of perfection, we will continually get better, right? And it's kind of like, well, I'm never going to shift perfect. So why do I even try shifting good at all? Well, because that's the point. You want to shift as best as possible. And you're only going to do that by trying to shift perfectly. Meaning you set your aim small and miss small is kind of what he's saying. Like the more, the, the, the higher standard you set for yourself, the better off you're going to achieve if you don't hit that standard, right? And then he provides a very good case for, because I think this is specifically in, in this is throughout. This isn't left, right. This is everybody and myself included. And I'm now moving away from this idea um, which you're saying, what idea? The idea that you can live how you want as long as it doesn't affect me. The libertarian idea of like live how you want as long as it doesn't intrude on me. And except my, I have, I used to really espouse that idea, but now I've been kind of moving away from that. And this analogy that he makes is perfect and, and really kind of was like, yep, I'm sold. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I, this is definitely my stance that no. I believe, because first of all, we talk, if you go back to the laws of nature, there's something on what we ought to do and how we should react, meaning, you know, how we take care of ourselves. I believe that we should call for men, and I use men as everybody, as people to be as virtuous as possible and live a moral life as possible. And you might say, well, it doesn't affect me, so it doesn't matter. That is a fallacy. I think if we have a bunch of people living horribly, while it may not directly affect other people, it does affect society at large. And the, the analogy he uses here or metaphor, whatever you want to call it, the imagery he uses is he says, it's a fleet of ships. So each person is a ship, right? And he says, we drift away from one another in two ways. We, where things go wrong inside of us personally, with me personally, I become twisted and demented and, and, and living wrong. And then things go wrong. Uh, and then we, we, we drift away from each other meaning we are more of fiber and society breaks apart. And so he uses a fleet of ships as an example, saying a voyage for a fleet of ships depends on two things. A, each ship must be right, meaning must be in good working condition and not have any problems. Secondly, the, the ships as a whole should cannot run into each other and they must all be in this in unison and going the same direction right and he's like if, if if several ships start sinking and whatnot and the fleet suffers and the voyage suffers as a whole and could be a failure if all the ships are whole ridden and not well kept ships and have severe problems and then, then the fleet may not make it one person may one ship may make it but then if, if ships are discombobulated and aren't all going in the same direction, they're going to run into each other and the voyage will not be able to be completed as well. And so to me, that's an apt comparison to life. And that is why now I hold to the position that they're like, why do you care? It doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect me in the sense that we like to, like it doesn't have an effect on my day-to-day -day life, but we have to look in the grand scheme of things and that how we live and how 
and, and how we operate in our personal lives sets us in a position as a whole. We have to think more about the grand scheme of society and the direction of society. Meaning if we all want to take on a lack of virtue in whatever realm we want to, I think all in all, that's bad for that. Like I would say like the, the culture of porn and the fact that like 99% of all guys have looked at porn, myself included, at some point in their lives and have struggled with that addiction. I think that is that hurts our moral fiber because what do we see now? We see incels of guys who struggle with good sexual relationships with um ideally with their spouse, but, but in general, and, and they, it actually has shifted and it's like, hold on. They, you, you see situations where guys prefer porn over the real thing because it, the way it stimulates and, 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 and how twisted it is and, and how it can twist you over time of, of suffering with an addiction to that. So I think that is a great, um, way to look at things. And I think that kind of explains morality, right? And so um, just another quote to close that part up. He says, people think it doesn't matter what their ship is like as long as it's run into other ships. Already said that. Um, that was the wrong quote. But specifically he says, you cannot make men good by law, meaning you can't just put good laws in place. You need to call men to be good. Laws prevent men from being bad. They don't make men be good. And he says, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. That is why the inside of the individuals matter. And I completely agree. Law is there to set boundaries for people not to step out of line. But if we want men to be virtuous and seek that virtue, we have to inculcate that and, and show that importance. And so that's kind of his case for, or not kind of, that is the case for why it matters how you live individually on what's to use his terms, what's going on inside the individual. So then he gets into cardinal virtues and touches on that and how there's four cardinal, three theological. And those virtues are prudence, temperance. And these words are a little bit, they're, they were almost getting outdated then. They're definitely outdated now in terms of um, what they are. But prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. Not all. I mean, justice is obviously a hot button word, right? So quick definitions of what they are. Prudence is basically practical common sense, taking the trouble to think out what you are doing and what will come of it, right? And he points to the scriptures where Paul says that God, he wants you to have the heart of a child, but the head of a grown-up, meaning be as be, be childlike in your approach to people in, in, in the sense of, you know, I, it, it, I can't articulate person, but he says, you know, the heart of a child, but be as wise as a serpent, meaning you should have your wits about you. We're not called to be naive. And I think that is something today that we see is that we feel like a lot of times naturally we think that means Christianity falls into some sort of naivete uh, mindset. And it's like, no, 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 we are called to be, you, you think about a child, you know, they're, they're accepting, they, they'll make you, they'll become your friend so quick and they're trusting. And that's, that's how we're called to be like a child. Right. And, but we're, we're called to also have our wits about us. And so his point being is like, don't give to charity and not consider at all, whether it's fraud, meaning like. Don't just be like, oh, I have to give money and this says it's a charity and it's a charity. It's like, no, you should do your due diligence. You shouldn't be overly skeptical and be like, I don't know, I didn't trust it and, and, and rationalize your way out of giving because we are called to give and on some, on some extent, in some levels, we, it's not, a, you know, we could, we, we could give to something and it could end up being a fraud, but it's like, if we find that out. We, we should just be aware of that we have to guard against those things because those things are always there. Temperance is moderation in all pleasure. Pleasure. So he talks about how even at his time, this one was kind of 
meant, I think, specifically for like alcohol and things like that. But he talks about any pleasure that is overindulged is a problem. And so he's like, the person, <laughs> he goes, a sign of a bad man is that he can't give up something without demanding everyone else give it up. And I was like, oh, interesting. that's something I never even thought about. But it's like, yeah, it's kind of true. Like, if I have to give it up, then everyone has to give it up. And it's like, no, dude, it's, it's good for you, right? And he says, this one hit home for me. As far as conviction, someone who makes their whole life about sports, their pets, clothes, etc., is just as intemperate or just as in the wrong as, say, an alcoholic. And I was like, interesting. It's absolutely true. And I think on the face, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, we all agree with that. But when you really sit on that and marinate on that specific thing, to me, it brought up, it's like, all right, what things, what things am I intemperate about? What things do I have a problem with? For America, mostly it's food, uh, food and sedentary lifestyle. And so that's uh, led us to be obese. But justice, is he says it's more than like in the legal sense. It is the old thing that refers to fairness is what he says. Honesty, give and take, truthfulness, keeping promises, etc. And that's kind of his term of justice. So outside of the legal sense, but just in a general fairness. And then fortitude is both kinds of courage, meaning the kind that faces danger and the kind that sticks it under pain. And I was like, that's a weird phrase for me. It doesn't. Um, he said, maybe the common term is guts, right? So being able to like in the face of danger, you can step up, you can take it on. But then also when things start to suck, you can get through. And that's fortitude. And the interesting fact is he said fortitude is kind of foundational in that all other virtues need a measure of this one so that they can be carried out. So, uh, and, and, he, and he also makes it a point to point out to say that just because someone does something good, um, <laughs> he talks about like how bad people can do good things, but good men consistently live well. And he uses sports. He's like, just because like you can, a bad golfer can hit a good, have a good swing every now and again, but that doesn't make him a good golfer. What makes a good golfer, and maybe I'm living on a golf course where it's just the analogy he used, but that's why I'm using it, is a good golfer is someone who can hit consistently well. And the same is true when it comes to the virtues, right? It's like a broken broken clock is right twice a day, but but a working clock is, is right all the time. Meaning a virtuous man is not someone who does something good every now and again. And we say, ah, and I think we throw that around. We're like, oh, he's a good guy. And it's like, well, is he a good guy or does he good, do good things sometimes? And that's a, that's a hard question, right? Uh, he, here he touches on how right actions done for the wrong reason are still, are just as bad because of that moral ethic that is beyond us, right? What we ought to do. It matters. Our intentions matter. Um, on the terms of giving and specifically within the Christianity, where this is, this is always a sticky subject. Tithing, how much should I tithe? Tithe, you know, do I have to tithe to a specific church? How does that work? And here he says, look, if one, first of all, if one feels he need not give anymore, as in he's given enough, he is wrong. That is wrong. And he says, and the amount that, he, he says, I can't speak to the amount that one should give. He says, I can't pin it down. So he says, so the rule that I hold to is you give more than you think you can spare. And sacrificially would be the term that you hear, the Christianese term that I've heard uh, growing up. And I was like, ooh, yeah, no, I, I could see that. And I think that's the good rule of thumb. And it's like, well, what should I give to? And it's like, those are all conversations we can have. But when we're talking about mere Christianity, the call is to give. Uh, talks about morality and psychoanalysis, talking about how like humans judge external actions, but God judges the moral choices. We're either progressing or regressing. There's no stagnation. And 
how the interesting phenomenon of like just how you the more you learn the older you get the more you realize you don't know the same is true for like morality and virtue the better you try and be the more um the better you become the more you see how a how bad you were how bad you are and how bad you can be so now the fun one sexual morality this might be my favorite analogy in the whole thing because basically the case is made that a you know that that chastity doesn't work, i.e. abstinence doesn't work, and that that's the wrong kind of culture. Purity culture is bad, and it just it just um, represses our sexual appetites. But he has an interesting case that was apparent in his time, and is apparent now. So he looks at it through the lens of food. He says, the starving men think about food, but so do gluttons. And you're like, oh, so like sexual appetite is, is like any other appetite. And in the sense that it grows with indulgence. As you eat more, you can eat more, and that's how you get fat. And the same is true about sexuality. And he thinks that's an overcorrection from maybe there is, you can be too tightly constrained and make it too taboo. And and then that pushes people to indulge erroneous, like flippantly and bad, and you have problems that way. But then I think we're living in the overcorrection where it's like, we were repressed, and it's like, we need to just indulge everything. And he touches on this here. So he says, <laughs> says the he uses it he uses the comparison of a strip tease but instead of um uh, say a woman it's a plate of food and you're like wait what a minute and he goes so we look at a strip tease as a reason for a lack of sex in society or lack of normalizing it and like there's some we're starving essentially but really he says that is just in the other way a perversion of the appetite just as we would see if it was played out with a plate of food if we went to some place and we saw a people and we saw literally a strip tease, but it was a plate of food where they slowly lift a napkin off the plate and everyone's in a place going wild and throwing money. We would say, we wouldn't look at that and be like, oh, these men are just so hungry. That's what makes it good. We'd be like, no, 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 this is weird and odd. You've now perverted, skewed the relationship with food. And so uh, I think that completely applies and would say that applies especially today. And uh, I agree with that. I say, look, it's not necessarily, it's kind of like, well, like porn is normal and it's like better for us. And I was like, no, no, no. I think it actually takes it too far the other way. If we're going to say we're overprotected now, I think we're underprotected and we're over normalized in our sex. And that's essentially what he says here, right? He says, there's nothing wrong with enjoying your food, but there is with half the world being obsessed with food and looking at pictures of it all day, licking their lips. And you're like, Oh, when you just replace say people or women for food in that instance that's what you hear and it's like oh that is weird and you might say well it's not a fair comparison to food when it's like i don't know it's to me the the sexual appetite being similar to other appetites makes sense another good quote from this section is yeah he says i have desires for my wife sexually those are good but when my mind is tempted to explore the visuals of another woman that is natural but not healthy or good in any way that's actually not his quote i think that's mine so basically I'm putting, I'm framing it in, within the context of my marriage, meaning, um, cause he gets into how people start to argue that, well, it's just what comes naturally. So natural equals good. And it's like, well, actually we have lots of like naturally. And we see that in America as we see in the West is naturally people want to eat all the time and they want to eat just sugary junk food. Well, we know that's not good for you. You need to restrain yourself. The, the whole of human history and humanity is learning how to properly restrain and discipline your urges because people given the chance, will just indulge themselves into oblivion. Anything that is good, we have a propensity to overdo. Everything, alcohol, sex, 
food. I mean, you name it. If you want to look in another situation, hunting of the, of, of the American bison way back in the day when we almost went extinct because it was great. It was great money. It was good. And yeah, it was immoral in some sense, but it's like, yeah, that's what we, we use things up. Like the, the apocalyptic movies that like paint humans as bad and as a parasite and a leech on everything. That's true to an extent in, in, in that we, we are really bad about that. My joke that I have is like the bigger house you buy, you don't, you don't, you don't all of a sudden have more space. You just, you get more things to fill up that space. And that's what we do. Like, right. You get a phone with more memory. You still have the same problem of it being full, but <laughs> even though it's like you have twice the memory, it's like, what happened? Well, it's like, that's how we are. We, if there's something there, we're going to use it. If there's something there, we're going to fill it up. So that is, and that, and that's his, his premise, right? And he, he gets into this other part, um, a repression. So he talked, he, he makes a good point about repressions. Cause I think we hear that a lot how purity culture and abstinence, it represses our sexuality. And he's like, well, he goes, repression is actually, it gets thrown around, but it's overused. Repression is something that is thrust into the subconscious, usually at a long, young age, and then remerges later as a, in a distorted, unrecognizable form. And so he's like, what we dub repression is simply a lack of a will to try to control ourselves. Now, in that same note, he touches on that they... People like to downplay, we'll say abstinence, he says chastity, because it's impossible. And he's like, well, when faced with an optional question to answer, meaning one considers the possibility, but when faced with a compulsion, one must do the best he can. Meaning, and this is in the frame of Christianity, right? So we say like, okay, when it's just, when, when there's a question of if it can be done, then we start talking impossible or possible. When it's a question of like, we, we, need, we should do this, we're like, you, you know, this is what you should do, this is how how you have to do it, you say, okay, how can I, I, I don't think I can get to that, but I'm going to, I'm going to try. And it, it must be a standard because it maybe is achievable. And this brings an important, important point to how I, my tune is slightly altered on, on, you know, viewing premarital sex within the Christian world specifically and things and how I've learned as I've gotten older that almost nobody can hold to the, um, ends up holding to abstinence or quote unquote purity. And it's ends up being more or less impossible. And so it's kind of interesting. And, and so we look at that. And, and so trying to hold judgment, but saying like, that is the goal, but you may fall short, but then that means you should still continue to pursue it. When you fall short, you should get back up. Right. And so, and, and, and he talks about how God understands that he says, the failure of people to adhere to chastity is not failure of chastity, but rather an acknowledgement that we will fail. What matters is the attempt and continual attempt when we mess up. There's no option in whether we can attempt chastity in Christianity. We are called to it and therefore must pursue it. But that does not mean we will be successful. But it does not mean we shouldn't try, nor are we doomed when we fail, i.e. forgiveness of God, right? And he says, in the attempt, I don't know if he said this, I might have said this one. In the attempt, we will have done better and been better than if we've never tried at all. And that I very much agree with. The important thing is that you try. So then that ties into marriage, right? And he, he goes back to of God made things in a certain way, right? So he says marriage, um, he first says what, what makes sex outside of marriage bad is that it's trying to isolate one kind of union from the others that come with it naturally and are tied to it. So I touched on this in my abortion episode that we try and we've now tried to sparse sex into for pleasure and reproduction and completely remove reproduction as a natural part of sex. Um, and that is how we get a culture of abortion and child sacrifice. And 
he basically takes that one step back and says, that's what we've tried to do with sex in relation to marriage, meaning it is designed to be within marriage, this other union that is a set of all sorts of unions that are, that are bound up in marriage. And we try and say, no, this is a different outside of that. And that is where we've gone wrong. And he gets into, I'll just read the quotes on marriage. Marriage is a promise and a contract more than a feeling. The idea that it's only to be in love is silly and allows no room for the promise and choice of figuring it out in light of feelings fading or becoming dull. So basically he's saying, we started to view, and it's interesting that he saw this in his time because we definitely see that in our time, especially with divorce rates. It's all about being in love and not understanding that just as much as choosing love, meaning the point of marriage is I'm making a promise to you that to stay with you despite whatever, you know, because feelings come and go. So other quotes, a promise must be about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling a certain way. That one hit me hard. And I thought that was a great way to approach this topic, something I'd never come up with. This is why he's a great writer. The love of the promise drives the marriage. The love of passion is the explosion that started it. So he's not downplaying the fact that like, okay, like the feeling of love is good because it, it sets in motion certain things, but then we must do have the, the, the love of promise to drive that forward. And he talks about how we're naturally like when we find ourselves in the feeling of love, the next natural step is why you have love songs, poems, different things, people, all these proclamations of love. I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to do all this forever. And he's like, so that's part of the process. So what marriage is doing is solidifying that and making it a promise and we have to do it, right? So he also touches on how Christian marriage should be separate from state marriage in the sense of there just should be a distinction. But I love those quotes from the marriage section. Then getting into forgiveness, he goes, everyone thinks forgiveness is great until they have something to forgive. And he then explores, he goes, well, if we want to explore loving our neighbor, we first must explore, how do I love myself? Um, he goes, I don't always feel fond of myself. So apparently that's not what the command means. It is not tied to the person, but what they have done. We hate the way we act a lot of times, but we don't then hate ourselves, maybe in the moment, but not prolonged. So we can love the sinner and hate the sin. Quote he uses, and of course, probably people are, sometimes I'm like, oh, I hate that quote, but it's true. But it's true, right? And he says, why do we hate some of the bad things that we've done? Well, it's because I loved the man I eat myself, right? So he then goes in to say, does, well, does that mean we don't punish? No. He says, if I commit murder, the Christian thing would be to, to do would be submit myself to the authorities. And <laughs> this is once again, his words and be hanged. Uh, and so he says, that's how it's okay for say a Christian judge to sentence a man to death or a soldier to kill an enemy. A Christian soldier is because um, we are commanded not to murder, not to kill. So here's where it gets an interesting technicality. You could go down a rabbit hole that I'm not going to go down. He says, all killing is not murder, just as all sex is not adultery. And I was like, ooh, tying the last thing into this thing. I love code callbacks. And I was like, man, that's such a good point, right? He says, we may kill if necessary, but we must not hate and enjoy hate, meaning we shouldn't learn to love that because then that's when we get into murders, right? So he talks about, he goes, you know, it's hard to love people who aren't lovable and hard to deal with the fact that we're called to that. But he goes, once again, he puts the mirror up and he says, but we should ask ourselves, is there anything really lovable about us? And if we try and say so, then we should try and view that on the others. Very convicting for me. Um, and, he, and he says, that's our relationship with God. And he looks at us and sees our sin-ridden, rebellious lives. And it's like, there's nothing really lovable about us, but he loves us despite that. And so we should then extend that forward. So as he kind of reaches the end of the book, he starts to, he gets into how pride is the king of all vices, if you will. and. 
He basically says, he sums up pride as this, right? He says, it gets no pleasure in having something only out of having more than the next man. So it's like, it's not happy with being accomplished, but it's looking at everyone else and wanting to be better, right? Then he also touches on something that I suffered with where it's like, look, pride in being complimented is not pride. If you've done something good, it's okay to be praised. It's when you think that you did a good job, I am such a fine person to have done that, that's when pride comes in. It's nothing with saying like, yeah, no, I did something good and they, they congratulated me for it. That's okay. And he talks about the same like having pride and like your son is more of an admiration than pride. And then finally saying hum- humility, which once again, I think it's twisted to mean like self-deprecation. He goes, that's not humility. Humility means you just, you don't look at yourself at all. He says, you, if you look at a, hum- a humble person, you will see, you'll see someone who's just cheerful, intelligent, who actually took an interest in say what you said. He will not be thinking about being humble. He isn't thinking about himself at all because when we're fo- so focused on being humble, we're also still focused on ourselves. Now it's not to say we shouldn't check ourselves and make sure we're not becoming prideful. That's different. But if we're always focused on how do I be humble? How do I be humble? What are we doing? Once again, we're focusing on the self. So touching on hope, he, he kind of comes at people. This is probably my second favorite quote in the book to people who make light of the Christian hope of heaven and say, they don't want to spend eternity playing harps. Simply say that if they can't, you should say to them, if they can't understand books written for grownups, they should not talk about them. His point being that this is a naive straw man to, when you look at the Christian faith and understanding that, um, that like, it's silly, right? And it's like, oh, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a classic joke of like, oh, I'm going to go to hell because that's where rock and roll and all the fun stuff is going to be, right? All the fun people go to hell. And it's like, nah, you're, that's a, that's a, that's a horrible straw man about it. He talks about how there's kind of three interpretations of life in the world. The fool's way, where he puts, he blames everything on things themselves, meaning, oh, well, it's because my wife did this or things happen this way. My boss is this way. And that's why it sucks. Um, he says there's a disillusioned sensible man who concludes it's all moonshine, meaning, ah, I tried once upon a time, but I don't believe in rainbows and sunshine anymore. And you just have to accept the hardship. And there's a Christian way where people are not born with the desire, where we look at people and say, we're not born with the desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Proper satisfaction. Now that may not make sense. Well, that's why you need to go read the book, but I just wanted to touch on that point. So Ending this section on faith, he says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reasons has once accepted. Your reason has once accepted. In spite of your changing moods, moods will change. So it's basically kind of points to how it's like similar to a promise. I mean, faith could be seen as like a promise to uphold something. I mean, like reason has led me here. I hold to this and it's, this is something I hold to no matter what. I may not feel like it that day or feel good that day, but I hold to that no matter what. Then he gets into book four. Um, it's called Beyond Personality or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity, talking about how, like, who God is, how his relationship, how the Son of God is different, and how people struggle with understanding, A, how God can be everywhere at all time, in all times, and how he's not, he's outside of time, and how he's kind of incomprehensible, but also how he's a four-dimensional being to our three-dimensional selves, and so when people try and bring up issues with, say, like, the Trinity... Or how can it be three persons in one? They're one person, but three different entities. How does that work? And he's like, look, a one-dimensional thing is is just a straight line. And the, that line cannot comprehend a two-dimensional thing that is a square. And that square cannot comprehend, but a square is made up of lines. But And that square cannot comprehend the three-dimensional cube, which is made up of squares. And so is the same way. If we're the two-dimensional square and God is a three-dimensional cube, we cannot 
fully comprehend. We can maybe say a cube. What do you mean? But I mean, I'm only in two dimensions and that's his point at large. And that's my point at large. When you come into conversations of God too, something that I've come to understand is like on some level, I'm not saying we, someone wants to have discussion, meaningful discussions about God and who he is and how that incorporates into our world and a deity beyond us, an intelligent creator. I'm not saying that it should, well, just, it's totally understandable. It's a being beyond us and leave it at that. No. But what I am saying is that like, look, we should not expect to fully be able to fit him into our two dimensional box. He's a three dimensional being entity, if you will. Meaning there are things that we cannot fully understand. We can explain, but it still boggles my mind. Like when I think about how he is, time is a line that he's looking at. And we know at point A on the line where things stand and at point B where they stand and how A is going to lead to B. But those of us, if we are if point A on the line doesn't see point B and doesn't know where it's going, but we can see both of those simultaneously at the same time and interact and jump in. And it's not. Yeah. And so you're like, what, what are you saying? Exactly. So he talks about too, kind of how the theology, some people want to leave God to just being, Oh, I experienced God when I went and did this thing or out in nature or this near that, you know, this experience this deep, meaningful experience. He goes, that is good. And you did interact with God. And that is more tangible than say the theology, the doctrine, going to church or talking about concepts of God. But where do you go from that experience? Does that change your, your, your day to day? Does that really, what practical effect does that have? And so he's like, that's why we need theology because theology is kind of like the map. Experiencing God is the most real thing. It's like being on the beach at the ocean. But then a map of the ocean shows you where you can go, shows you how vast it is, and is based upon information from thousands of people's experience, right? And so their real experiences build this map, this theology, if you will, that then allows us, it's like, look, if I'm on the beach and that's, and I want to get to across the ocean, I need the map. And so it's like, if I want to get somewhere, I can sit there and experience the beach, but that's where that ends. So. He, he kind of sums it up like this, like in the essence of Christianity, we are sculptors. We are, we are, we are in a sculptor's shop and we are the statues. And there's a rumor going around that some of us someday are going to come to life. Meaning that's how we are. And that that's what we look for. And that's what God is going to do is we are, we are creations of the creator, maybe made in, made in his image. And that he is going to bring us to that fullness of life. If you will bring us to life in the end. Right. So he also talks about needing those personal experiences with God, how just theology is not good because it's impersonal. Um, another good quote in this section is just sunlight cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror. The same is true for God revealing himself to people. He cannot show himself someone who is a dusty mirror. And that last part I added, and he's basically saying that like, look, two people wonder like, why does God reveal himself to certain people and other people? And it comes down to readiness, right? Like you can't explain calculus to someone who doesn't understand algebra and trigonometry first. And so it's like, you, you can't just come in and be like, here's this thing. And it's like someone who's not ready to understand that and ready to see it because it would be baffling, overwhelming, and like just kind of incomprehensible in, in like, it wouldn't work essentially. And it would, it would be conflicting. And so it's like, God, has perfect timing and understands where we're at. And that's why he reveals himself more to some people or earlier to some people is because they're ready for that experience, right? They, the dust has been wiped off the mirror and so they can properly reflect. And, and, and that, and that's pretty good, right? He then goes in to talk about how like our relationship with God, meaning if we come to God and say, I want you to take this thing from me, fix this thing in me, how God is not, God is all or nothing. 
Christianity specifically, is all or nothing. Meaning, you can't come in and be like, heal me of this ailment, or heal me of this problem, or fix this problem. And he'll just say, okay, I'm just going to fix that problem. <laughs> it's funny, he uses this comparison. Goes, God is like the dentist. You have, a, you have a toothache, you come in to sh- see that toothache. He's not just going to look at that toothache. He's going to look at everything. He's going to find every possible wrong thing and fix every possible wrong thing. That is his deal. And part of that is he cannot help himself in doing that. Meaning you finally come to him. He says, sweet, we're doing a total overhaul. We're not just putting new tires. We're putting new brakes. We're putting new rotors. We're, we're overhauling the engine, the interior, everything. It's full on pimp my ride, <laughs> if you will. And C.S. Lewis doesn't say it's pimp my ride because it wasn't a thing. And he says, once you call him in, he's giving you the full treatment. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. So he's like... And he acknowledges too, he's like, that's going to involve, that could be painful, that's going to involve up and downs, it's going to be hard, it's not going to be simple, but you will be transformed. And that's a call to it. And he cannot help but do that. And so just be ready that if you do come to God, that's what you're going to see, right? So if we want him to fix something, we must be prepared that he's going to transform all of us, right? He then finishes up. So we're kind of, that's kind of basically wrapping up at the end of the book. Here I am in an hour. Dang it. I thought I was doing good. I thought I was doing so good, but whatever. So he talks about how goodness doesn't really mean much, meaning, and goodness makes it harder for us to come to God because he points out that, that who was the devil? The devil was the highest angel in God's court. His goodness was second only to God. And, that's the, and so that's what makes being maybe goodness having a good temperament, if you will, can make it hard. It's harder for that person to see God than the person who is quote unquote bad or living in wickedness because they are already so close to that goodness that it makes him, it makes it hard to see the need and the, uh, the badness really, I guess, in all of us. And, um, and so that's an interesting thought of how, and he kind of alludes to how Jesus talks about, you know, it's, uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come into the kingdom. And he basically talks about how prosperity in this world and we'll call it good temperament, even to being a generally good person makes it actually really, really hard in some ways to come to say Christianity is because the fundamental thing in Christianity is that we need, we are, we are, we're broken. We are flawed. We need, help and we need to be set right with our creator um how he designed us to be set because we live in a broken and a flawed world and it's hard to see that see past our goodness and really examine ourselves and see you know maybe we're not as good as we think but so i thought that was a very interesting thing and uh, the comparison with the devil being the archangel so uh he, he, the closing one of the closing statements the closing quote i'll use here from the book is look for yourself and you will only find loneliness hatred, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So he basically says, like, look, when we, I think that speaks to what we see nowadays, where it's all these stories of go find yourself, find your whatever, do this, go on this journey of personal exploration. And it's like, look, I'm, there's always going to be some hole, something falling short there, some, some need we're trying to fill with this or that. And he's like, but if you seek Christ, AKA maybe the goodness, the, uh, of the creator in, in the world, then you, you will find him. And then with him, you will find that peace, that understanding. You will find that joy. And that's his case. 
And that's mere Christianity. I don't know if that even made any sense. There was a lot of bouncing around from quote to quote, but so many good quotes, so many good points. Um, one that I think I, I even, I'm going to take some of these quotes and try and incorporate them. Um, especially as in regards to like marriage and sexuality and sex, yeah, sexual mor- morality and the different virtues and things like that. A lot of good imagery here. So I will say a lot of this, I mean, I'm already a Christian. I'm already in that world. And so this, I kind of understood, but seeing it broken down in this way is another way to help illuminate maybe certain pitfalls that I run into or questions that I don't know how to answer, or you, you may not know how to answer. And so no matter where you fall on the spectrum of things, whether you're, you're, you've been a Christian for a while or you're quote unquote, a lifelong Christian and you're like, I already know about Christianity. It is worth the read. Just like, like any good writer is worth the read. And it's relatively short. It doesn't mean sometimes it's hard to read, whether because it's the verbiage of the time or the just kind of the weightiness of doing imagery and trying to talk about these complex ideas and break them down and boil everything down to its essentials, its simplest functions. So all in all, I would say it's a great book and I'm definitely going to read a lot more of C.S. Lewis. Obviously he has the Chronicles of Narnia and that's, that's kind of his most famous series, but then he's got like all these other books and I kind of want to read them all. So, uh, he's fun fact too, before I finish, he, his name, we, we always say C.S. Clive Staples Lewis. That's his name. So he's extremely successful. He's a great writer and he's a great Christian thinker as well. I put him in that Christian writer, thinker, writing is thinking, according to Jordan Peterson. So you guys tired of me quoting Jordan Peterson yet? <laughs> I'm sorry. He just, I think he's smart. He's an intellectual. And I think he has a lot of useful things to say and to provide to our modern world, just as C.S. Lewis did back in his time and still in our time. So all in all, I'd have to give it a, I'd give it a, like a 32 out of 33. Like really, it's high up there, high, high marks because it is at the same, it is complex, but at the same time, simple. And it's the fact that he was like, look, I'm just trying to show you the very absolute basics. And, but at the same time, to even understand the basics, we have to understand certain realities about life and define our terms and the world. And that's what he has to do there, but he is able to do it. And the, I really like the fact that this was, these are audio um, these were live broadcasts during World War II. That, that context for me brought it really into fruition and was like, hmm, a lot of interesting good topics. But I merely scratched the surface of mere Christianity. So make sure to go pick it up for yourself. Go read it yourself if you haven't already. If you have, I would love for you to send in your thoughts. Even though I've already done my book review here, send in your thoughts and let's, let's hear about them. So um, I would love to hear your take on this book if you've read it or any of the other C.S. Lewis things you've read. Maybe some of your favorite quotes anything and everything cinnamon. I do not have next month's book squared away, but I think I know what it's going to be. So um, that'll do it though for this book breakdown of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It was the May's book. If you want to go read it yourself, I will put the link to buy it in Amazon, buy it down below. I will also probably link all the other episodes that were my book breakdowns and that might be too many links to link to all of them because there's links in those episodes. So I don't know. We'll see. It'll be, it's a link fest down there. Good luck. But that'll do it for this episode of the Rambling Viking podcast. We will see you here at the end of June to review 
whatever book I end up reading in June. Uh, thank you so much for being part of the Hanya Accord. Let me know, do you like these book breakdowns, these book reviews? Um, and should I, should this be an independent podcast where it's, it's just the month book of the month book club, right? And we start that and start building that out. That's the kind of the question at hand. Uh, let me know any and all, all of your thoughts or if you'd like to come on the podcast, please, please reach out. Make sure to follow us on all the social channels, Rambling Viking Podcast. You can find us Facebook and Instagram there. DM me with any thoughts, questions, ideas, guest opportunities, stories, what have you. You can also email the show if you want to go old school. It's ramblingviking at gmail.com. Please be sure to share this. Um, I don't know if you can like it, but you can rate it. That's how you like it. It's the equivalent of liking on YouTube. So be sure to rate this, leave a five-star review. You can do that on Spotify now, and that'll help me help the show grow. We'll grow the Hanyak Horde. I want to thank you so much for being a part of the Hanyak Horde. And if you're new here, welcome to the Hanyak Horde. This has been the book breakdown of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I'm your head Hanyak, signing off.